I'll say it, thanks be to God for the gift of Anglican music. We don't hear that often, and it is a joy and a treasure to hear that, so thank you. I was delighted when Bill invited me to preach on being an Episcopalian because he's heard um, in the new member class, which we'll have one later today and tomorrow night, in the new member class, we spend our time talking about how we got to where we are, meaning here at Kenilworth Union, and that's our faith history. So he's heard me many times talk about my Episcopalian roots to the point where I told him I was going to make something up just because he would be bored otherwise, but that wouldn't be fair to those attending the class. So he's heard it many times. Um, when I was in my mid-20s, you know, I, was, I had a corporate career before ministry. When I was in my mid-20s, I'd moved to Montclair, New Jersey, which is just west of Manhattan. Um, and I couldn't find a Swedish Lutheran church or a German Lutheran church, which is how I had always worshipped. So I looked at the end of the driveway, and at the end of my driveway was an Episcopalian church. So I ended up wandering across the street and finding a wonderful church home that was very formative for me in a host of reasons that landed me later on in a pulpit. Um, one of the things that I noticed first off was that it was the first time in my life. Now remember, I was a Swedish Lutheran and a German Lutheran. It was the first time in my life that I sat in a congregation with someone who didn't just have brown eyes, they had brown skin. I mean, it was, but it was formative, though. And Montclair is a wonderfully integrated community. That was something I missed most about Montclair. And the church was maybe 60-40 or something. It was just, in the Anglican community, it was everybody gathered together. Um, Africans, African-Americans, Middle Eastern, um, Indian, Pakistani. It was, you know, this domestic Midwesterner, I was like, wow, this is, this is what church is all about. And I became gladly a member. This was also the first time I was in a, an experience with church in which I noticed significant conflict. Now, not that the prior churches in my life were devoid of conflict, that would be a fairy tale, and we know those don't exist. But it was the first time that I was old enough and engaged enough to truly see, shall I say, how the sausage was made. And the conflict had nothing to do with racial or ethnic tensions, nothing whatsoever. The only conflict that we ever encountered was how to raise enough money to fix the leaky roof where we did find complete agreement, and it was complete agreement as I had never experienced, and that was the way in which we would worship together. There was never, not only was there never a debate about worship or prayer, there was great delight in worship and prayer as being always the same from the Book of Common Prayer given to us by the Anglican tradition and given to us by our parents. It was, it was just the way we worshiped together. Our liturgy today is, in fact, taken portions from the Book of Common Prayer. You are very fortunate we will not be here for an hour and a half like our Episcopal brethren often are. We will only hear one lesson as compared to four, as our Episcopal brethren normally do. The epistle for the day is given to us from the um, Episcopal tradition, from the, the lectionary, as is our prayer of illumination taken from Scripture as Episcopalians pray. So I invite you to please pray with me now. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and to hear and then obey what you say to us today. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our epistle is a letter that church, uh, Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. Some of the text will be very familiar and beloved, and some of it's probably not read much, and it's because it's of a dis discord and, and discontent. Listen for God's word as I read from Philippians chapter 4. 
Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Yodia and Synteke to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard in me, and the peace of God will be with you. Here ends our reading. Thanks be to God for this holy word. So we listened in on a private correspondence between Paul and this church in Philippi. And one of the joys of reading letters or emails or maybe even texts that you've tucked away for years and years is to be reminded of the intimacy and the love and the reason why you got that correspondence. Couples and families have stacks of cherished postcards or letters as a treasured past of who they are and how they came to be who they are. We experienced this joy in reading a letter that Paul wrote more than 2,000 years ago while imprisoned. His letter to the church in Philippi has shaped our faith and it's comforted us in times of struggle. It stands within our holy scripture as a witness to his wisdom throughout all the ages. On the flip side of saving letters for all eternity is that immortalized has been this disagreement between Iodia and Synteke. They will always be known as women who didn't seem to get along. Now we don't know why, we only know that Paul praised both of them for their work for the gospel and urged each of them and this community to be, I quote again, of the same mind in the Lord. Now you've heard it read quickly and it's printed in your bulletin, but you probably haven't looked at these words in a long time, nor do we look at the words of the disagreement. So it's sometimes hard to notice what's not there, but I've been looking at it for several weeks. What Paul doesn't say in a gathering that's supposed to get along and to treat each other with loving kindness, one might expect him to say to this family with whom he's very intimate, you might expect him to say, would you just stop it? Would you cut it out? He certainly has done that in some of his other letters, perhaps a little bit more eloquently though. But he doesn't scold them for disagreeing. He doesn't attempt to take sides and he doesn't reprimand the community for allowing these two women to continue to bicker nor does he condemn this as a sign of weakness. He doesn't say any of that. But what he does say, what he does call them to do is to again be in the same mind in the Lord. And they're to get there by praying together. Lay out your thanksgivings, identify your supplications, and do it to God together in prayer. Now for Paul, prayer is not a technique, but it's a relationship. And so for the Philippians, Paul leads them to a very humble posture before their creator and with one another. 
You see, he's redefining their point of view to see themselves not as a collection of lone Christians. There's no such thing as a lone Christian, nor is this a collection of adversaries. He wants them to see that they are in a world that God created, sitting side by side with people that God created, to know that Iodia is a child of God and Synteke is a child of God. They are in God's world and God is as near to them as their very breath. And then Paul calls them to rejoice in the Lord, turning their attention from their circumstances of their individual lives and grievances and desires to focus instead on the blessings of a life with God who loves them through adversity. Amid heartache or loss or suffering or striving to change the world to a more just and loving and kind place, we are humbled by how difficult any of that can be. We don't ever do it on our own. No matter how difficult it is when we are, though, of, together in the same mind, our entire worldview changes. And when we pray together in this same mind, new possibilities are revealed. To those gathered in Philippi, Paul pleads, for God's sake and for the sake of the Christian community, remember, you are in God. Now, it's obvious from the very beginning, the words disagreement and church seem to go together all the time, even though we wouldn't think that that would happen in a holy collection. And as we celebrate our Reformation, it started with a disagreement. In 1534, King Henry VIII of England severed his ties with the Roman Church in protest over their unwillingness to give him an annulment. He was dedicated to preserving his legacy, to preserving the British monarchy. His current wife couldn't provide for him an heir, and he had someone else he wanted to marry. He wanted a divorce. The reformers on the continent also had inspired not just Henry to get a divorce, uh, the reformers also inspired the British Parliament so that they did sever their ties with Rome and the Pope was no longer the head of the church. Instead, Henry was named, I quote, the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England. So the Church of England became the first in what's now known as the Anglican Communion of Churches and it married the liturgy and the worship of the style of the Roman Church which was so beloved with the Reformation theology that decided and knew that humans had reason and we stood before God without anyone in between us and God. So it invited all of this wonderful rich tradition and a willingness to embrace a bold future in which humans, each person had a voice and an idea that sanctioned new ideas. Now before the split, certainly formal liturgies had been the, the way of the world, but they were in Latin and they were often written by hand and ad hoc modified by a priest right before. But at this Reformation, we also had the advent of the printing press and an inherent desire for this new church to have unity. And the unity for this church was found in praying together and praying together in the words of scripture. The words of scripture would be drawn directly from the Bible, but they were now put into what's called the Book of Common Prayer. It was shortly published after the Reformation in England so that throughout all of Britain, throughout then what became all of Great Britain, those kneeling shoulder to shoulder would worship each Sunday with the exact same words. So enough of a history lesson. 
What was vital in the birth of this new tradition was their devotion to praying together with prayers that not only echoed scripture, but they were words of scripture. Praying from the Book of Common Prayer was praying to God with the very word of God. They were resting in God again. And the faithful adherence to the Book of Common Prayer by all individuals, by all churches, by all members, shaped their core expression of belief and identity as a people of God. So consider this. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, when Jesus teaches us to pray, it's with these words, Our Father, who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. He didn't tell us. He didn't teach us. My Father, who art in heaven, give me or forgive me. Collective and common prayers instill within us a sense of community that binds us to those throughout the ages and with one another. It goes back to Jesus' very first words to us, pray together. You're in this together. Almost 500 years later, Anglicans and Episcopalians continue to affirm what became known as a three-legged stool of scripture, of tradition, of praying together, and of human reason. And it's this final leg of reason that honors, that leads them to honor varying traditions of belief, their ways of interpreting scripture, and the ways in which they appear in the world. There is no common confession. It is a common book of prayer. The reason in this leg, three-legged stool, reason also sanctioned the dissension that permeates the Anglican and Episcopal churches back then and continues today. They are continually negotiating standards for ordination and for marriage and for the unity or not of how they should advocate for social justice, where they should demonstrate, and how they conceive of justice in this world. Now, when I was in divinity school, there was a wonderful scholar who sat next to me, a young guy by the name of Benedict Varnum. He's now Ben, and he pastors an Episcopal parish in Nebraska, and I think we will hear more of Ben, hopefully, in our lives. He coached me a bit on this sermon as we spoke about the Episcopal heritage and the ways in which he now sees a church being formed. And he wrote this about prayer and reason. So this is from the words of my buddy Ben. Prayer is not meant to create a genie's power of wish granting. It is meant to convert ourselves. To live a life of prayer is to constantly be asking for our heart, mind, soul, and strength to be made greater than they are by the God who is greater than we are. The reason we pray in response to the broken parts of the world is recognition that we are not large enough to repair these broken places. And it is also a yearning to grow large enough to offer that kind of healing or peace. Prayer is a voice asking for courage. It is asking of ourselves that we be changed to what God would have us to be, to meet the challenges of the broken things we see, whether that is a broken system of climate or a broken human heart that seeks deadly weapons or a system that constantly allows such weapons to be too near at hand. We can learn from the Episcopalians to pray side by side with those with whom we may disagree, and we do so for the sake of the church that is much larger than our individual lives. Now, if what we learn to do in church 
is to shape how we behave in the world, and that's why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. We can take this same spirit of choosing to remain in community with those with whom we disagree out into God's wider world outside of the church. Veteran radio journalist Celeste Headley authored an article for the Wall Street Journal entitled, The Right Way to Have Difficult Conversations. Now, she has a wonderful track record as a, as a radio journalist, and you can only imagine the only reason someone's going to listen to her programs is because she's provoking you into thinking something that's contrary to your way of thinking or is revealing a truth that you had never seen before. She has experience in having difficult conversations. And she writes, I can confidently say that a good conversation isn't necessarily an easy one. Despite how emotionally charged some topics may be, there isn't a human being on this planet with whom you have nothing in common. No topic so volatile it can't be spoken of. Now, as a personal aside, perhaps this article resonated so much with me and so much of the Episcopal tradition is because someone once gave me a refrigerator magnet. I still have it, even though it's down in the basement refrigerator. And it says, you can agree with me or you can be wrong. <laughs> so Headley's advice, she begins with, I quote, first be curious and have a genuine willingness to learn something from someone else even someone with whom you vehemently disagree. As an example, she shares the story of Zernan Clayton, an African-American woman who was appointed to oversee a neighborhood improvement project in Atlanta. And in that neighborhood was one of the neighborhood captains, a man by the name of Calvin Craig, who was also a grand dragon in the Georgia realm of the United Clans of America. We would say shorthand, he was part of the KKK and a leader. Over the course of a long year, not one conversation, but the course of a year, they met face to face and talked. Until finally she asked him, why do you keep coming here? You and I don't agree on anything. And Craig told her that he found after all these conversations, she was fun to talk with and he wanted to talk with her. It was years, not a year, but years later, Craig held a conference to announce that he was leaving the KKK to dedicate his life to building a nation where, I quote him, black men and white men can stand shoulder to shoulder in a united America. This, encounters, this encounter showcases a skill in difficult conversations. Headley advises us to, I quote, resist the impulse to constantly decide whether you agree. The purpose of listening is to understand not to determine if someone is right or wrong, or if someone is an ally or an opponent. And this wonderful secular journal, the Wall Street Journal, in this she concludes, the point is to get into a habit of viewing others as fallible human beings who are just trying to make it in a very difficult world. Jesus came into a difficult world. Jesus came into a difficult world and saw the hurt in humanity, and he went into those difficult places. He pursued over and over again conversations with the other side. He didn't let it rest, and that's what he's called us to do. And we all know we don't need to look hard to find those difficult conversations. I certainly know where they are because I tend to avoid them. 
But if we believe that we are all children of God, if we believe that we all live in God's world, nothing is too profane and nothing is ever off limits. And this includes with family and friends. So we start with knowing. God calls us to love one another. So how do we respect the gift of human life and protect the Second Amendment? We need to respond with each other and talk about guns and gun control with candor. God reminds us that we were once aliens in a foreign land and that we have all been immigrants. My life is filled with immigrants, both those who have legal residence and those who will reside forever in my heart but will never have a green card. I will listen to you talk about border walls and I hope that you will listen to me talk about my hopes and fears. I believe God would condone such a conversation. Jesus devoted his life to healing. He healed everyone. And Jesus has equipped us to do so as Jesus' hands and feet. That's what we're called to be as a church. So perhaps we face the great divide in the healthcare debate. Perhaps we begin by praying together for the wound that we have between us to heal. The wound between these warring factions so that we can look at healthcare and pray together and at the end of that prayer say amen and take some action. And if we can't, we go back to praying together. However large or small our circle of life, for the sake of our future, we need to learn to listen and to speak. Now going back to the beginning, Paul encouraged us to be in the same mind as the Lord for the sake of our Christian community. For the sake of the unity of the church, we can learn from the Episcopalians to pray together through scripture regardless if we agree on personal confessions of faith, social justice, or how to fix the leaky roof. For the sake of our community, we need backbones and patience and a reminder to see the divinity in another person so that we can pursue a difficult conversation. And for the sake of our family and friends, we remember to start with God's command. And finally, in our individual lives, when we wrestle between cultures, shoulds, and what God might call, for the sake of our very lives, we go back to Paul's advice to be in the same mind. George Herbert was a rising English statesman in the 16th century at the same time as the English Reformation. He graduated from Cambridge, served as a public orator, a plum position for anyone with national ambitions, and he was elected to Parliament while still very young. But stunning his friends, he gave up his political ambitions to be ordained in the Anglican Church. His friends objected, suggesting that the life of a pastor was beneath his dignity and skills as a scholar and statesman. But he did it anyway, and in 19, or pardon me, 1629, Herbert became the rector in an English village where he spent the rest of a very short life ministering to a very small flock. While he was there, he composed poems and what he called his little book. It was never published in his lifetime. No one might have ever noticed him had it not been for this little book. But it contained, and I quote from him, a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul. Before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus my master, 
in whose service I have found perfect freedom. Today, scholars esteem Herbert as one of the most skilled and important poets of his day. One of his poems became dearly beloved and was set to music. It's in the Anglican hymnal and 46 other hymnals, but not our own. It is printed in your order of worship. I invite you to please find it. As we sing together, we will be singing his poem. We will be singing his prayer. Come my way, my truth, my life. Come my joy, my life, my heart. In the unity of God's word, may it be so. Amen. <laughs>